In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark 1, 14 through 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Then after Jesus rises from the dead in Luke 24, 45 through 47, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, after Peter preached in Acts 2, this is what happened. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, gift, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, in the great city of Athens, as he's going to proclaim the gospel there to the philosophers and to uh, those who believe they were wise, he says in Acts 17, 30 and 31, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then in the book of Revelations, he's speaking to the seven churches. He's speaking to the lukewarm church here, Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I just wanted you to get a, a feel of how important this topic is, how prevalent it is. It, it starts in the Old Testament, right? That, that Bap, John the Baptist verse is, is basically a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 51. And so we're looking at this idea of repentance. And last week, Josh gave a definition of it, Esau Macaulay, and I'm going to read it to you. Repentance is a change in direction, a spirit-empowered turning around, turning away from our sins and toward the living God. And what I want to do this week as we begin to delve a little bit more into repentance is I want to put a little flesh on the skeleton of that particular definition. I'm just going to expand it a little bit so uh, you have it in your outline. Repentance in the Bible involves a complete and irreversible change of mind, heart, and actions. Repentance recognizes that our sin is offensive to God. To repent means to make an about-face, a heart-directed turn away from self to God, from the past to future, ruled by God's commands, acknowledging that the Lord reigns supreme over one's existence. Repentance is a all-encompassing. As Josh was speaking last week, he spoke about the body in, as he was 
talking about repentance to holiness, the idea that it isn't just the spirit, but the body is very involved in this. And here today we're going to be talking about this repentance that leads to our hope, that leads to hope. And so the first thing I wanted us to realize today is and to say to you is that repentance has to be accompanied by godly sorrow. It has to be accompanied by godly sorrow or it's not true repentance. And so Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 11. He's, he's written a letter to the Corinthians because they've been sinning. They've been sinning outright. The community has known about uh, some outrageous sins. And he sends a letter to them. He's speaking the truth in love. And he doesn't know what's going to happen because he's thinking like, oh, I, I might have spoke the truth in love too harshly. They're going to just run from me and run from the gospel. But this is a response to that. And listen to where he goes with this. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. See, he, he was very concerned that this letter, speaking the truth in love, might have been too harsh. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now here's the words. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see? Can you see how this godly sorrow leading to repentance brought a complete change, a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of heart? So we're going to look at a little bit now. We're going to delve into this idea a little bit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use two Old Testament kings and their reaction to being uh, told about their own sin, about their sin being exposed. Uh, the first one is in 1 Samuel 15. It's King Saul. King Saul has conquered the Amalekites, but he's disobeyed the Lord's instructions, sparing their king and the choices of their flocks and herds. Uh, he's confronted by the prophet Samuel. And then Saul made excuses. He insisted that he had obeyed the Lord. He shifted the blame. He claimed that saving the flocks for sacrifice to the Lord was the people's idea. It was then that Samuel uttered these memorable words, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So Saul admitted to the prophet, I have sinned, yet he asked to be honored in the sight of his elders. He wanted to avoid public reproach. He wanted to save face. He wanted his reputation to remain intact. He confessed his sin, yet he remained selfish to the end. And as a matter of fact, it's at this point where God rejects him as king. Now we have King David, an example of godly sorrow. When King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin, his reaction was, decidedly different. Surely his sin was grievous, for he had committed adultery with a married woman and then arranged the death of her husband as a cover-up. At the moment his crimes were revealed, David became undone. See, David's confession and repentance before God are vividly displayed in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12 and 16 and 17. I want to read this so that we get an idea of a heart that is moving into godly sorrow. So let me read 
starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. Look at the difference in the attitude of heart. See, David wasn't concerned about himself. He, he cared nothing of what others thought. He's the king. And yet he basically starts weeping and he's, he's laying out and he's crying out to the Lord. And he's, done, he's doing this for days. He grieved before God about the effect of his sin and the effect it had on others. Here in stark contrast, we see the difference between the worldly sorrow of Saul and the godly sorrow of David. One is completely selfish and cares only about the personal cost of sin. The other is sorrow towards God. He cares about the offense to his holiness and the impact of that sin upon others. So let's bring this a little closer. Let's, let's look at an illustration. And the way I wanted to do it this morning was is, um, let's anchor this in real life. We have two people, they can either be male or female, and they come before God because they have been exposed of sin. It could be a, it could be a sexual sin, it could be an addictive sin, uh, it could be an abuse sin, uh, you know, a sin that really has impact. Both have hurt their families. Both have lost their jobs. Both have suffered financial loss. Both have incurred damage to their reputations. In so many ways, their stories are the same, yet their reaction to the situation is radically different. The first person cries out to God, begging for mercy, knowing their sins are an affront to God himself. This person pleads not for themselves, but for their spouse, their children. This person knows that the losses they've incurred have hurt others, but are the consequences of their own sins. This person begs for forgiveness because they missed the fellowship with God. Understand that Jesus has paid for their sins by his blood. This person has true change of heart and hates the sin that they once cherished and by faith receives God's forgiveness and is cleansed and is restored and is moving towards change and renewal. The second person also cries out to God, confesses their sins admits their wrongdoing, but remains completely self-focused, grieves over their losses, 
complaints about the unfair treatment they have received, demands justice. This person has great remorse and regret, but for their own pain and not for the pain of others. There is no brokenness. And finally, this person plunges into self-pity and despair. One is a picture of godly sorrow. Another is a picture of worldly sorrow. That we ourselves, I'm sure we can think about situations in our lives and times where we've been in both of these categories, maybe. In godly sorrow, there's true remorse and acknowledgement of a wrongdoing, of sinning, a desire not to repeat the sin. There is grieving of the harm done both in our relationship to God and others accompanied by a deep desire to change. See, the first element of repentance is conviction of sin followed by a godly sorrow. And then a turning, one of the most dramatic turnings in the gospel stories is by the apostle Peter. And I want to talk about this turning, right? Peter, he's known far and wide as the emotional one, right? Maybe even a little volatile, There was nothing hidden up his sleeve. He was authentic, man. He was forthright. I always, I'm, you know, I love Peter. He was courageous. He was bold. He had great zeal. But he was also impulsive. He was not afraid to lead, nor to put his foot in his mouth. And yet we see him rebuked by Jesus. He falls asleep on Jesus. And most grievously, He denies Jesus three times. In particular, this last sin has colored many perspectives on Peter. But, and it's a big but, something in Peter's life is greater than his sin. It's greater than his sin. And what it is, is his repentance. We all can relate to Peter and his sin. But do we grasp the depths and power of Peter's repentance? See, sinful Peter is one man, and repentant Peter is another. You see it. It's an amazing change that takes over Peter. There's been a turning. See, the key to understanding Peter's turning in repentance is to realize it was not Peter who turned first, but it was Jesus who turned first. Listen to the account of Peter in the courtyard, Luke 22, Verses 60 to 62. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight. Did you ever notice that before? The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. After Jesus looked at him, he remembered Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I I have a couple pictures. Could you put that first picture up? Okay, you see, here's, here's Peter. There's the woman accusing him. The soldiers are there. He's in front of the fire. This is, he's now starting to rant and rave. This is the third time he denies him. And who's coming across is Jesus. And Jesus looks. At Peter. Now, could you go to the next one? These eyes, right? Looking straight at Peter. Here is Peter in the midst of his sin of denial. 
and the eyes of Christ meet him. It's that turning of Jesus to Peter and looking that moves Peter. What happens? Uh, it went right through Peter's heart like lightning and it melted to his very soul. See, true contrition happens when the Lord turns and looks upon us, his eyes looking into the depths of our hearts. And how does that happen now? It happens because that's what the Spirit is able to do. The Spirit is able to bring conviction in our hearts, makes us see with the eyes of the Spirit we, through the Word of God. When I read that Word, it's as if God is looking at me. That Word is coming at me. And there's times when I actually feel and sense that God is looking right into the depths of my heart as that word comes to me. There's a great conviction that comes with that, and it breaks my heart. And it happens because he turns to us first. We cannot do that. Our default mechanism is to defend ourselves, to rationalize. Our defense mechanism is to make excuses for everything. But it's when the Spirit now comes, looking as Jesus looked at Peter and begins to speak to our hearts and brings that conviction and our hearts and our souls begin to grieve and we see this before a holy God. We begin to break up. Our, we can't rationalize it anymore. I have no excuse for it anymore. I see the depth of my sin. And it's here we feel our human helplessness. It is here we turn and come to our God and Savior in response to his waiting look. You know, it's this wonderful story of the prodigal son. And, and, and we have this idea that the son finally comes to himself. He begins to see, you know, see what he is. But, but it's, it's that looking to the father. It's, that's what brings him to turn and change. Thinking of the father, actually in his mind, knowing that the father is, is even caring for him in that very moment. He could see the eyes of the Father on him, and he knew he had to go home. And that's what repentance is, brothers and sisters. It's going home. It's turning and going back to God who loves you, who died for you, who forgives you, who adopts you, who is willing to suffer. It's that going home. I was thinking about this, you know, in, in our lives, we confess our sins. We, we turn, right? Uh, but we, we don't always have these amazing moments, these Peter-type moments. But we do repent. We do turn. We're turning from our sins. As I'm confessing my sin, I'm saying to God, not only am I someone who's guilty of this, but Lord, I don't want to do this sin anymore. I don't want to come against you. I don't want to hurt others, Lord. I want to move in a different direction. And then there are times... When you have those moments in your repentance, like Peter moments, right? Can you think about them in your own life? What was it like when you made your first commitment to the Lord? Where was your heart in that particular moment? I know for me, God had been working in my heart probably for a few months. And I was struggling back and forth, back and forth, knowing that, if I, get, if, I, if I came to God, I was giving up my life. I, I was basically admitting my helplessness, my inability uh, to be God in my own life. 
uh, and, and I, was, I was basically admitting all the rebellion in my heart. But after I heard a resurrection sermon, it was, it was in that moment that I saw that there was that turning to my heart and it broke it. And when I went home, I literally went into a room by myself and I had to be with God alone and in that brokenness came to him. Now, after a while, as a Christian, I'm confessing, but a couple of years go by and I have another one of these moments. I've been working in the restaurant business and, and God has been working in my life. He's been changing me. I mean, the people, I, when I went to California, I had worked with these people before I went. When I came back from California, a Christian, I went back down and started working there at Downey's down in front and South Street, and a lot of those people knew me. And before where I would want to go party and everything like that, now, uh, you know, they would go, I, I would say, no, man, I'm, you know, it's not really anything I'm concerned about anymore. And then every once in a while, if I did go to a bar with them, like I'd have one drink and, uh, and, and they, were, they were sort of amazed by this whole thing. And, and what God began to work in my life, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was driving home from work, and, and, and the Spirit began to work on me. And I was going to temple then. I went to temple in the morning, and I read Psalm 51. I can't remember why, but the Spirit just said to me, deeply, this look came into my heart and said, you are using what God is doing in your life for your own glory and not his glory. And it broke me. It broke me. I, I must have wept for three hours on campus that day. But it was God going to that deeper level. It wasn't just external, but it was that deeper level, my own heart, taking advantage of God for my own glory, that people would see me in a different way. And I, I was just broken. And then with, in a few hours, you know, I felt that restoration of forgiveness. And when I went home, my wife announced to us that we were pregnant for the first time. And I felt like, God, you just prepared me to be a father. It was one of these beautiful moments, right? Um, I, I can think of many. Uh, one other one was um, I, I, I was struggling with, uh, I guess it was midlife crisis, anxiety, been doing ministry for a number of years, but I was waking up every night. I couldn't go to sleep. I sometimes thought I was making myself blind. I mean, there was all kinds of craziness going on. And uh, I was waking up in the morning and, uh, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning and, and reading scripture and, and really asking the Lord to help. And it was interesting. The Lord turned the whole thing. It was like, I, I forget. I think I was reading the Sermon on the Mount and he just turned that word on me as if Christ was looking at me. And, and basically what he said to me was, the reason you're like this, Angie, is because you're thinking about yourself too much. And I heard that. I mean, it was like, boom. It was like, bang. You know, the heart just went. And I literally knew it. And, and basically, as the Spirit was coming, I'm reading the Sermon on the Mountain. and says, now, why don't you go down to North Philadelphia and help those people out? That Miss Dawkins needs help with that high rise. I mean, it was almost, it was like right in my mind and heart. And I was like, and if you do that, you're not going to have anxiety because you're going to be serving somebody else. And that's what I did. And that's how the whole work in, in, in Philadelphia started, was that type of moment. It was as I came to the Lord, the Spirit came. Jesus turned and looked at me through that word and through the Spirit, and my heart was broken. And I changed. And I changed. And now, what, I have an ongoing relationship for over 34 years of ministering with the brother and sister who's now gone to Africa with me 30 sometimes. 
It's, it's what God does, right? One last one, because it's one that uh, I always pray, uh, because I know this is where I need so much work. I just love myself. Don't you love you? I just love myself. So how am I going to love my wife? How am I going to love my children? How am I going to love you? That's a deep one. And I keep praying that prayer. Lord, I need to love in the way that you love. And the Lord continues to change me and change me. And, and I can now look at ways in which the Spirit came in different times. Working with the youth group. Working in Philly. Working in missions. Working as a pastor. Doing counseling. Where he's given me that love. But you know one of the great rewarding things is, is, is when your wife says to you just yesterday, you are so much kinder than you were. You're so much kinder than you were. That's the prayer. That's what's being answered. It's God working through repentance. It's, it's those types. So, so that's what we're talking about here. And it, and it starts with that spirit looking, that sorrow, and, and, and not giving up, confessing the sin. Get to hate it. Confess it so much you go, Lord, I hate even confessing it. So that the Spirit comes and begins to move and we turn. I love what Spurgeon says in that quote. True repentance has a distinct reference to the Savior. When we repent of sin, we must have one eye upon sin and another upon the cross. Or it will be better still if we fix both our eyes upon Christ and see our transgressions in the light of his love. See, that's where we go in the light of his love, is looking at us, is calling us home. And, and, and that's where we move to this hope of repentance. You see, repentance means there's hope. When we thought all hope was lost, there's hope. You know, you know when, when, you, when you're falling into rebellion and sin, you know, Satan has a field day with your mind. You've already repented of that sin. How many times do you think God's going to forgive you? You're wicked. God doesn't even hear your prayer because of the way you are right now. There's so many things. And what it does is it moves you away. It brings you into despair, accusation, all the things that would move you away from the knowledge of God's love. But repentance just turns it all around. There is more than a second chance. It's the sweet sound of chains falling off of us as we repent and we know forgiveness again and again. Know that God has not given up on us, but he continues because the blood is eternal in Jesus Christ. Amen? There are no limit. The call goes to everyone, no matter who you are. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's as close as your fingertips. The king has come, and he's brought forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace with God. So I want to say to you, I don't know if you've ever had godly sorrow and truly repented. And maybe this is the first time your heart is being challenged with this. So I say to you today, hear the call. This is your day to repent unto salvation. This is your day to come. 
If the Spirit's speaking to your heart right now, I don't know how old or young you are, have you truly with godly sorrow humbled yourself and turned away and have said, you, Lord, you, Lord, I humble myself and come, forgive me. I make you Lord of my life. If you've never done that, this is the moment for you to do that. Or go home like I did and spend some time alone and be with the Lord. So repent. Here's what Rachel Starr Thompson says in her article, To Repent is the Hope. I have that quote there. Repent is the sound of love calling out to the broken and huddled in shadows, lonely for home and fearful of ever facing the Father again. Come home. It's okay. We can be whole again. Come home. God is calling us. Come home. Now, brothers and sisters, for you who have believed, you've had that repentance. We have to recognize that again and again, we need to keep coming back. And what I wanted to do was a very quick exercise out of a scripture verse and then encourage you to do this through the week. So, If you could put Psalm 130 up, that would be great. So I'm going to to read it whole first, and then I'm going to go through it. And as I suggest some things through it, maybe these are ways that you can be thinking to be praying. So Josh has us fasting, and now I want us to be praying through this psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in this world I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord For the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So let's just take this apart just a little bit. So there's this sense, right? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, be attentive. There's this consciousness of sin in the psalmist's life here. To the point of being overwhelmed by it. This is godly sorrow. This is conviction with godly sorrow. If, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So, if I, if, Lord, if you kept a record, there's, there's nothing I could do. There's no hope for me, Lord, if you kept a record of those sins. But because, Lord, there is forgiveness, Lord, there is hope. There's hope, Lord, because there's forgiveness. Do you get that? Do you know how much hope there is because we're forgiven people? How much hope it means in my relationship with God, my relationship with one of you or all of you, that I can come to you. We might have hurt one another, but we can forgive one another. It's supernatural. It's given to us as God. And what does that do for our relationships? How powerful is that? That every relationship can have hope in it because there's forgiveness? Have you ever sensed that? And there's this wonderful thing, and I... Never forget my father-in-law preaching on this. And he says, you need to dare to believe you're forgiven. 
Because a lot of people do not ever get to the place where they truly believe they're forgiven and Satan has victory. You can't stay in sackcloth and ashes. Guess what? God doesn't want that. He sent his son so that you're forgiven. He sent his son so that you can stand up again and in hope you can walk out again as one who is a child of the living God. So when I repent of my sin, I joyfully accept that I am forgiven by God because of the work of Christ. Amen? And that changes me. It gives me hope. It moves me out. It moves me to the creator again so that when I read this psalm, as I'm reading it, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait like like the watchman wait in the morning. The watchman waited for the morning with great expectation of the new day. And when we come to our Lord and we repent and we're forgiven, we wait with expectation and with hope. What is this new day going to bring? How is God going to make me a blessing because I am blessed? How is the Spirit going to move through me in a way that I would never asked or imagined? Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him full redemption. How amazing is that? Yes, as many times as I have to, I can come because he has unfailing love. And the redemption that I have is solid. It's unshakable because of Jesus Christ, who can look into the depths of my heart and shatter my soul and restore me in the same breath. By God's grace, let's read through that together. Let's pray through that together. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand this more. And as we do, as our faith grows, then we will go deeper into Christ. And as we go deeper into Christ, he will continue to change us. Here's the thing. I have default modes. Do you have default modes? I have them, right? Don't you? I mean, my wife could tell you all of them. You know, if that happens, Ange is going, he ain't going to like it. Don't ever put him in a line. Don't ever. Don't ever have him in a traffic jam. There's so many default mechanisms. But here's the thing. As you go deeper in faith and in repentance, guess what? Your default mechanisms begin to change because you're becoming more and more like Jesus. How amazing is that? And I can look back and I know that some of my default mechanisms have changed. Just the music I listen to. I'm not sure about the TV shows yet, but we're getting there. (laughs) But you see, this is how God works, and this is why we have great hope. We do. Repentance leads to hope. Godly sorrow out of conviction, that turning of God to us through the Spirit and the Word and through one another, speaking the truth in love, that moves our hearts. Our hearts are moved And in that moving, we cry out for forgiveness out of the depths. And there is a God who doesn't keep a record of wrongs. How amazing is that? 
How about you? How good are you at keeping a record of wrongs? Don't answer that. Might be lightning coming down. No. But we're all very good at it, right? God does not keep a record of wrongs. How amazing is that? That's why we can keep going back. So I want to encourage us. Let's joyfully repent. Let's be so thankful that there's conviction of sin. Let's pray that God melts our hearts. And in that, we will see forgiveness, reconciliation, newness of life. We will know hope, and we will be people of hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we so thank you that we are not left to ourselves. We so thank you, Lord, that in our running from you, in our rebelling from you, you pursue us. You pursue us through Jesus Christ. You pursue us now through the Holy Spirit. And you have provided for us a way, a way of forgiveness, a way of reconciliation. And you, in turning, reveal that to us. You move our hearts to come to a place where we say to you, Lord, we need you. We need your forgiveness. We need reconciliation. We need the knowledge of your love in our hearts. We thank you that we can cry out of the depths and know that you keep no record of wrongs. We cry out, Lord, in knowing that there is forgiveness for sins. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope in Christ. And so we ask now for your spirit to be at work in us. Take the words of Psalm 130 and work them deeply in our hearts. Take these truths that we will again and again find ourselves turning more and more and in that turning more and more, experiencing the depths of your love and forgiveness that we might become more and more conformed to the image of the Son, that we become more and more living out the character of heaven on earth. And as we do that, may we be a blessing, a blessing to all those that we love, care for, a blessing to those, whether they're in our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that because we are a people of hope who know the forgiveness of sins, that in this broken world, Lord, we will become those who are ambassadors of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.